0: Hey, this is noah levine founder of against the stream refuge recovery and dharma punks thanks for tuning into the podcast i hope you're enjoying the dharma together may we create a positive change on this planet if you feel moved to leave a donation there's a link in the show notes may our paths cross soon welcome anybody at against the stream for the first time tonight welcome welcome anybody at home for the first time tuning in on Zoom, welcome to you. And um, I'd like to start by you know in service of uh, taking building community. part of the Buddhist model is not only our own meditation practice and our ethical behavior, practice of renunciation, but also community connection, and um so i'd like to start by having you introduce yourselves to each other and try to give some sort of prompt of what to say to each other other than just like hi i'm uncomfortable talking to you um tonight i'm going to talk about what the buddha did after he gained enlightenment so uh what are you going to do after you gain enlightenment? <laughs> so just like think about like if you became a Buddha, which, you know, I'll give you a simple definition that through your own efforts and meditation and you came to this place where you did not suffer at all anymore. Zero suffering, alleviation of The causes of suffering, which is our attachment, no longer attached, you're able to respond to everything with non-attached appreciation. No matter how pleasant it is, no matter how lovely the experience is, non-clinging, no matter how impermanent it is, non-clinging, letting go. And the ability, you, through your own efforts, develop the ability to have compassion for all of the pain, both internal and external. Everything unpleasant met with friendliness rather than aversion. Met with caring and warmth and and understanding and forgiveness rather than, I fucking hate this. No more, I fucking hate this. What would you do if you had no attachment, no aversion, And you totally understood that your mind has a mind of its own and that it's not who you are. And this ego identification, this personality tendency that we have is not who we actually are. That there is not a I, me, mine that owns this human experience, that it's very much impersonal in so many ways, that there's not a solid, separate, continuous self. If you woke up to that and no longer suffered from self-centeredness and understood the nature of your mind and everyone else's mind (laughs) and the self-centered human condition, that's not your fault. Compassion and non-attachment and and this kind of wisdom. So when you have that experience, it's coming soon, I can tell. You're just on the verge. Last week, we talked about the Buddha sitting under his Bodhi tree, battling Mara. And the uh, mind attacking with greed and hatred and delusion, just like your mind attacks you. And that he saw through it and that he woke up and that he freed himself from suffering. <clears throat> So just pretend for a moment that that's going to happen for you soon. You're going to be free from suffering. What the fuck are you going to do with it? What would you do if you got enlightened? To go to work on Tuesday? Maybe. Maybe like I'm just going to show up in my life as a kinder, wiser version uh, are you going to, you know, start a mega church? If I can sell that shit on Instagram. How can I monetize it? <laughs> right? Like that kind of, if, as soon as you have that, how can I monetize it? Yeah, no, you're not there yet. <laughs> not there yet. How can I give it away? How can I? Or... part of what we'll talk to about tonight, maybe your mind goes to like, I'd fucking go live in a cave and enjoy my bliss. Fuck this world. With non-attachment, non-aversion. But fuck this world. I'm out of here. Fuck the rat race. Um, Which the Buddha came close to, you know, and I'll talk about that tonight where he was on the verge of like, I don't want to deal with humans. Humans are fucking annoying. That would be, he, he the, the translated as he says, that would be vexing to try to teach mindfulness. What a pain in the ass to so a bunch of unmindful, self centered people. That sounds unpleasant. So meet someone uh, at home, I'll put you in groups. And uh, tell each other what you're going to do when you get enlightened. It was a good
1: one. We kept
0: that one. Yeah, that's fun to pretend like you're enlightened, huh? Uh, I could do so much cool shit. It's funny how the ego right away wants to be like, I would be so selfless everyone would love me so much when I'm not me anymore. All right, well, um, if we wanna ever get there, we have to meditate our way there. So let's do that together, find a way to sit that is upright and relaxed. as you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed. Make any adjustments necessary to find a sustainable, relaxed upright posture. Releasing any Unnecessary tension in the face, the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Letting the head balance on the neck, softening, releasing shoulders, chest, and belly. Allowing our hands to just rest. resting on the knees and the lap. establishing an attitude of friendliness, of kindness, the intention to be patient and tolerant with your own mind and body. Establishing mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness of the body, upright, sitting, breathing. Allowing the thoughts to be present in the background, not trying to stop your mind from thinking, but choose not to pay attention to your mind right now. Pay attention to your body. Learn to ignore your mind, break your addiction to thinking. Let the breath be the anchor to the present time experience in the body. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in, feel, receive the sensations of the breath. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out with awareness, clear comprehension. I'm breathing out. A relaxed but focused attention on the sensations of the breath. Each time the attention gets drawn into something else, hearing or thinking. Acknowledge it with patience, with acceptance, thinking again, no judgment, just what the mind does, but choose to disengage from the thought, come back to the breath over and over. Present time awareness includes a quality of investigation, bringing curiosity, interest, to the characteristic of impermanence. How is the breath changing? How is the experience in the body constantly changing? Each breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Bring mindfulness to the beginning of each breath, the end of each breath. Rather than continuing to ignore the mind when your attention is drawn to a thought, investigate the impermanent nature of the thought. The story that the mind is telling about the future or the past, or even the present. How it's an unfolding narrative, a worry, a doubt, A desire, a resentment that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Your attention is drawn to a sound. Likewise, investigating the arising and passing of sound, how it appears, sustains, and disappears. If you're new and you find yourself really lost in thought most of the time, use the body as the anchor to the present, here, sitting, breathing. But try not to have an adversarial relationship with your mind, accept the thoughts, know they're there, as a process, an impermanent and impersonal process the mind thinks, just like the lungs breathe, just like the heart beats. A kind and accepting intention towards our own minds, as we try to see more clearly the nature of our minds. And permanence teaches us to let go. We see through our mindfulness that when we cling, we create suffering. Softening the jaw, the belly, the heart, and letting go of anything that we've been clinging to. About the past, about the future. Accepting this moment just as it is, pleasant or unpleasant, calm or chaotic. These last couple of minutes reflect on what it would be like to relate to your mind, your body, with the wisdom of a Buddha. Your mind, no different than it is, but your relationship to it radically changed, not taking. It also personally being at ease with yourself just as you are, having compassion for all of the pain, both internal and external. Understanding that happiness or unhappiness is not based on what's happening, but how we respond to what's happening. And This is true for us and everyone else, having the equanimity, being at ease. Not trying to control or manipulate or... fix anyone and that your heart naturally radiates loving kindness towards all living beings even the enemies even the difficult confused Kindness and compassion for all living beings. Free from jealousy and envy, the heart radiates appreciative joy, empathizing with all of the joy that is being experienced right now. May each one of us experience awakening in this lifetime to whatever level is possible. May all beings be met with kindness and compassion, appreciation and forgiveness. May our practice, our community, our good intentions create a positive change, both internally and externally in our lives, our families, our communities, on this planet, for the benefit of all living beings. my sense of what we've come to know as Buddhism the the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama's intention was to um give us a tool that was applicable, that Buddhism wasn't meant to be some sort of religious belief system, but a practical, applicable way to train our minds and our hearts and our actions that we could directly experience transformation, not based on what we believe, but our internal awareness shift. Um, And it's what we're doing in in mindfulness, it's what we're doing in meditation. And And so I'm going to continue tonight with um, this series that I'm somewhat uh, trying to linearly go through the life of the Buddha. And so the last couple of weeks I talked about uh, the Buddha's birth uh, story and, um, and then seeking enlightenment, the seven years of having left home and, and meditating and practicing radical asceticism and, and discovering, creating mindfulness. Mindfulness is um, one of the few things that is totally original to Buddhism, some of the other uh, parts of the Buddha's teachings like karma and reincarnation and um, already existed in Indian tradition um, and happened to be true. And so he included it, Um, but mindfulness didn't exist. As I talked about last, I think it was last week, uh, he was only taught concentration-based meditations. And um, and it was mindfulness what that was the game changer for his awakening. And the difference between concentration and mindfulness is uh, the difference between ignoring and including. When you get really concentrated, you ignore the causes of suffering, and then you feel fucking great ignorance is blissful concentrate that shit away get the fuck out of here but concentration is impermanent so then all of the causes of suffering come back when you're not concentrated you can ignore it for so long you can meditate that shit away as he found but then mindfulness is Let's include it. Let's turn towards the causes of suffering rather than ignore them. Let's be mindful of what our mind is doing and the suffering that it's creating for us. Let's be mindful of our tendency to craving and clinging and self-centeredness and fear and resentment. Turn towards it, towards our reactivity, towards see it and start to see how impermanent, how impersonal, how much suffering there is when we obey the untrained mind. Mindfulness trains the mind to be inclusive rather than excluding. And that was a game changer. And, and so he sat there under the Bodhi tree and uh, and everything changed. And it wasn't like, my, my own sense of it is, it's not like it just all of a sudden, Oh, I figured out mindfulness. There was that seven-year journey of the asceticism and developing and trial and error of like, okay, concentration is good, but it's not enough. Renunciation is good, but I have a tendency to take it too far, and that's not good either. And that coming back to the middle path, mindful, inclusive, accepting, compassionate, understanding of the nature of our minds, the nature of reality. And what an interesting thing to think about. um, What would you do, like we did when you're introducing yourselves, what would you do if you were free? And uh, the Buddha didn't have the motivation it's not like he, it doesn't sound like he went out and said i'm going to get enlightened and then i'm going to tell everyone about it he you know he was just keeping it simple he was like i'm just going to get enlightened i'm going to try if it's possible to end suffering this self-centered suffering that we create for i'm going to try to do that and then when he got there and he got there if you know if you believe in this shit he got there and then my sense from the stories in the scripture is he is a little bit like oh fuck now what i'm here have you ever had that experience where you're so excited about going somewhere to a physical destination like i'm going to venice it's gonna be amazing and then here you are going like okay i'm in venice now (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Eh, that's pretty good
0: now what going on vacation like the best part of vacation fucking planning it so excited to plan and it's going to be all of the thoughts about like oh this I went to Costa Rica recently it's going to be amazing and then you get to Costa Rica and you're like okay now what
1: Mm -hmm.
0: here I am it's hot there's mosquitoes and I brought my mind with me so the way the story goes is that he's sitting there and and i I talked last week about how mara attacked him the verge of enlightenment and his mind is doubting his own worthiness his mind is lusting his mind is uh judging, averse, violent thoughts, lustful thoughts, doubting thoughts. Mara attacks him and he sees through and he says, I see you. This is just the mind. It's not who I am. It's just judgment. It's just lust. It's just anger. It's just fear. These are just thoughts. This is the impersonal nature of the unskillful aspect of our minds, the ego mind, whatever it is, sees through it. And he says, I'm not buying it. I'm not going to... I'm not identified with it, I'm not taking the bait. And that's the really the shift from unenlightenment to enlightenment. Us unenlightened people take our minds personally, believe we are our emotions. We don't just relate to, oh, fear is arising and passing. Like, I'm fucking scared. I feel unsafe. I, you know, we take it all personally Rather than seeing, oh, this is just an afflictive emotion arising and passing through my mind. Oh, look at that. Unworthiness. (laughs) Interesting. I really feel like a piece of shit today. What's going on in my mind? You know, that sort of gentle, open relating to it rather than being it this shift i see you and see the wisdom and likewise with the wisdom thoughts and he didn't say like well i'm just the good stuff and not the unpleasant stuff also the impermanent nature of compassionate thoughts they arise they pass loving kindness thoughts the appreciation thoughts it's all a process and that battle with the mind and uh, my sense Is that he thought, and I said last week, like he thought, okay, I did it. I finally vanquished. I finally got rid of the ignorance in my mind. I know that's, I feel like that's like what we, uh, it's so common to think like I would be happy if I could get rid of those difficult parts of my experience. And I feel like even the Buddha, right into enlightenment, sort of brought this: like if I could just get rid of this identification with my mind, then it would stop. Mara would vanquish, vanish, disappear, go away. And Mara, the you know the Mara is characterized as this like demon that like slinks off, and he's like, okay, you saw through me, and you kicked my ass, and you're not suffering anymore, and this is a I'm defeated. you ever have that experience where your mind's sort of pissed that you're not taking it personal there's that part of your mind that's just like you're not suffering enough about this you're not you know you should be more afraid you should be more angry you should be more you should suffer a bit more and and that and that mara kind of like is dejected and then the very next day, now he's the Buddha. He's no longer Siddhartha, the lowly, unenlightened bodhisattva. He is the Buddha, Tathagata, the awakened one. And Mara comes back and says, You're not really enlightened. You think you're holy and pure and totally free, but you're not. And he Responds to that thought that arises in his mind, and he says, You're wrong. I am. I see you. This is just fear based, judgmental, conditioned thought. This is just Mara. I am totally free, even towards this doubt that is arising, even towards this fear, even towards this critical mind state that we call Mara. I am free. And throughout his life, he maintains that level of mindfulness that when those ignorant thoughts arise, he just says, I see you, Mara. Mara continues with the Buddha his whole life. The mind continues. After enlightenment, you still have emotions. (laughs) Bad
1: news.
0: (laughs) Your mind still judges and compares and lusts and fears and does all that same shit. But how you relate to it, how personal you take it, how much you suffer about it drastically changes. It's the whole Buddhist model. Not freedom from the arising, but freedom from suffering about what is arising. Now, the other reality here, um, you know, kind of the, the bigger picture is that the frequency decreases rather than living in constant self-centered unworthiness. It just comes up once in a while. It's no longer the uh, constant. Mara returns to the Buddha a little like over 40 times in 40 years. So it's not like he's saying every day I'm getting attacked by Mara, but occasionally Mara is attacking. That part of the mind is attacking occasionally rather than living with it. So he's chilling at the Bodhi tree and he's awake and he's not sure what to do. What should I do? And it sounds like his first... uh, He said, wide open are the portals to the deathless. Let those who hear show faith. But if I was minded, if I was thinking about um, to not tell, if originally I was thinking that oh, this would, to not share the Dharma because I saw that it would be vexing in trying to explain how to get here. It would be stressful. It would be a pain in the ass. How am I going to explain this? subtle, inclusive, don't ignore your pain, turn towards your pain. Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to click subscribe to embrace your pain. Everyone's going to be like, no, no, I'm looking for bliss. I'm looking for the end of all unpleasant thoughts and feelings. I'm not, I'm not signing up for learn to have a sore ass and a loud mind, and be at peace with that. So originally, he was like, I don't know, it sounds stressful. It said, you know, Mara is this quality of mind, negative, afflictive, you know, emotions. But then there's the, the Buddha mind or the wisdom mind. And, and in this uh, formulation, it's actually talked about as like, a divine uh, deity, you know, Mara is like the devil in Buddhism. And then there's these gods, there's these Brahmas. I take it all as psychological uh, analogy, that these are all just human mind states. So I'm maybe too rational Western, whatever it is, to believe that like there's these demons and gods that are talking to the Buddha. I think it's just the way that religion recorded his internal conversation. And it said that um, because he was doubting whether he should teach or not, he wasn't sure. That this God visited him and talked him into teaching. And um, I, I, you know, don't think it was a God. I think it was just a wise part of his mind. You know, that internal dialogue, the devil on this shoulder, the angels on this shoulder that we all have the you know there's the wisdom and the confidence and the you should totally help people no no that would be a pain in the ass don't help people but you should totally share this with people i don't feel like it i want to just chill i don't want to be of service and he responds to that thought he says to his own mind enough of this teaching of the dharma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those that live in lust and hate. People died in lust and whom a cloud of darkness lapses will never see. This truth that goes against the stream is subtle, deep, and hard to see. And that's where we take our banner against the stream, this truth that goes against greed, against hatred, against self-centered human obsession, people who are died in lust and hatred and political views and opinions and, you know, just self-centered fear-based ego identification, this teaching that is subtle that is inclusive, that goes against the norm, that is counter to our instinctual drive towards pleasure away from pain. And as he reflected on it and had this internal dialogue, the wisdom one he was reflecting And one of the stories is that he saw he was sitting uh, near the Bodhi tree by Lotus ponds. And that, um, there was some, you know, lotuses coming from mud puddles or, or, ponds or whatever it was. And that he saw, um, Oh, like in the Lotus pond, most of the Lotus, most of the plants and even the, the bulbs or whatever they are are submerged beneath the surface. And maybe there's a hundred plants in there and they're submerged. And there's only two or three that are actually breaking the surface and blooming into the beautiful lotus blossoms. That most of it is submerged. And as he reflected on how you know difficult it would be to share the dharma and to find people who were willing to do this radical path of awakening. So perhaps people are like these lotuses. Most people are going to stay submerged, asleep, died in their greed and hatred and delusion. But some, the exception, not not everyone, but some will break the surface or are those that are close to the surface or those that are coming through, those who uh, have the great fortune of dissatisfaction who who see clearly like he did there's a dead end in material and sensual pleasures and there's a dead end in blind faith and religious ignorance ignore ants and the other analogy that referred you know his he, he saw, he's like, it's humans are, are so asleep, like, uh, like the lotus is submerged. He said, most people, uh, you know, just because of the way, not judgment of this, just the reality, because of the way we're born with this survival instinct and the craving. And he said, it's like we have mud caked over our eyes. It's so hard to wake up because it's just like so uh, submerged. We're not mindful. We're not born with mindfulness. We're born with selfishness, fear, instinctual. He said, but there are a few beings, as I reflect on it. There's, it does seem like there are some beings, and there'd have to be some beings in every generation that don't have so much dust in their eyes or that only have a little bit of dust in, the, in our eyes rather than completely blind. Just a little obscuration, a little. And he thought about his his friends that he'd been practicing asceticism with, these five ascetics. And he thought about them and he's like, those guys, you know, we were homies meditating our asses off doing this thing for years and we weren't quite getting it right. We were a bit confused. We weren't seeing clearly. But those guys are sincere. People, like they those guys want enlightenment the way I wanted enlightenment. We were going down a dead end, unfortunately. We were on a path that wouldn't lead to what we were seeking. But maybe those are the kind of people who have a little dust in their eyes that would perhaps understand this teaching, this experience. If I can figure out out how to explain it to them correctly. and he didn't have it all formulated he didn't he wasn't like it took him a while to figure out how am i going to explain this non-attachment and everything's impermanent and uh compassion's the only rational relationship to pain and you can't get rid of pain and meditating it away isn't actually the solution we have to meditate with it towards it Uh, so it took him a little while to kind of figure out and he used the, eventually he figured out like, okay, there was a, he used the medical model. There was suffering, there was a cause of suffering, there's like a disease. And then there was a cure and the cure of the, to this disease and he formulated it into the eightfold path. The treatment. But before he uh, did that, um, he did decide, you know, he had that internal dialogue and he said, okay, I'm going to go find my homies and see if I can explain this shit to them. See if, if I can, if, if they'll, if I have the ability to impart what I've directly experienced, uh, can I teach them mindfulness? Can I teach them what I've learned? And he had regained his strength because remember he was so, so skinny, the ascetic uh, you know, skeletal, uh, Buddha, but he'd been eating his yogurt. He's gaining a little bit of weight and gaining his health. And he was in Bodh Gaya and his friends, he he knew they had gone to Varanasi to just outside of Varanasi, Saranath, which is a, you know, several days walking. And so he had gained, regained his strength and, um, and he decided that he would try to, you know, reflect on how to, Impart the, the dharma uh, on his way to go find his friends, teach them this against the stream method of awakening. And, and the first interaction that the suttas talk about is that he, um, somebody he ran into somebody as he started walking from Bodhgaya up to Saranath, and this guy came up to him and was like, Are you? real (laughs) because you look like so happy. And so are you like an angel or a God or something? And, um, and he said, no, but I'm the only enlightened being on this planet, (laughs) fully liberated from all forms of suffering. And the guy looked at him and was like, "Mm." All right. I hope that's true. You know, I think it's recorded as like, may it be so, friend. And then he took off by a side (laughs) path. (laughs) You know, and he's like, oh, maybe I should tone that back a little bit. (laughs) Maybe just going around and proclaiming that I'm the only enlightened being on this planet is going to freak people out a little bit. When he was, before he formulated the Four Noble Truths, when he was reflecting on this walk, uh, he's like, okay, there was five phases to my journey. And maybe I can help if I reflect on these five phases of my journey, that that will help me um, explain it to others. So the first part was that I had faith. I believed it was possible. I was I had confidence. I just I, I thought it, I, there had to be a solution. I was optimistic, I was confident. I was uh, I had faith that it was possible to change our relationship to this human condition. And, you know, I'll just pause for a moment to reflect on your own part of that. You know, where are you at in this uh, confidence, in this optimism, in this? Because just because he had faith, it didn't mean that his mind didn't keep experiencing doubt like we're talking about. Even at enlightenment, his mind was still experiencing doubt. He said, but faith was bigger, confidence, perseverance was way bigger than the doubts that would come through. And so faith, not the absence of fear or the absence of doubt or the absence of, but that the container of like, yep, I have doubt, I have disillusionment at times, but I have a general sense of the capacity for human beings to end suffering, including us, including me, including you that this is a possibility. Said I had faith that I could do it. I don't love the term faith because it tends to be used, uh, especially in Western religions, but also Eastern philosophies as a sort of like encouragement to believe some shit that's probably not true. Blind faith. Just believe that shit. Don't ask questions. So it's not that kind of faith. It's more the confidence in our own ability kind of faith. He said, from that faith, number one, number two, I had the energy. I was willing to put in the work, the effort, the vigorous. I studied. I listened to the teachers. I reflected on what they said. I meditated my ass off. I did the work. I put in the effort. The faith without works is dead. You know that saying? think it's shakespeare or some shit maybe it's in the bible i don't know yeah they stole it from shakespeare i'm pretty sure because <laughs> you and how many of us have been guilty of that Of like oh, i love the buddhist books and i fucking believe in buddhism but i don't meditate and it's like the effort of well what are you going to do with that belief with that faith i'm going to put it into action he said i did that i said i went on this journey i practiced the asceticism. I um, did the yoga. I did the, you know, whatever. I chanted Hare Krishna. I did all of it. And had the discernment to be like, well, this works a little bit. This works a little bit. This got me over here. Concentration is good, but it's not the solution. He said, and then uh, the game changer was mindfulness and concentration. And seeing the difference between the mindfulness and concentration, faith, effort, mindfulness, and concentration when brought together. The ability to, in the meditation instruction tonight, I said, um, pay attention to your breath, break your addiction to thinking. That's where concentration is really good. Break your addiction to obeying your mind. Learn that you can choose to ignore it and develop the ability to be able to choose to ignore Mara. To concentrate it into the background and you can be at ease in the present. Concentrate your your pain into the background. It's a good skill to have. You just don't wanna ring that bell over and over and over. It just can't be your only skill because it's not gonna work. But he said, The effort that I put into concentration helped me so much. And mindfulness, when I learned to be focused, but also inclusive, turning towards, being with, accepting, that's what really led to the fifth level, which was wisdom. Faith, effort concentration, mindfulness, wisdom. And the wisdom was what was the mindfulness and the concentrated mind revealed is that everything's impermanent. And not as a knowledge, because you already know everything's impermanent, but with mindfulness, the wisdom, the embodied harmony with impermanence Rather than it's, I know it's impermanent, but I'm still resisting it. Wisdom is no longer resisting, no longer clinging, no longer having an ignorant, delusional relationship, but accepting this is the way it is. It's all impermanent. It's all impersonal. This is just the human condition. We all live with these Mara minds and this craving, nervous system, and it's not your fault. The wisdom of seeing clearly the human condition. And the wisdom to begin to meet and consistently meet pain with compassion, which is so counter to our survival instinct that says, no, hate pain. And the wisdom to say, of course, the body hates pain, but the wisdom heart-mind meets pain with compassion, with acceptance, with tolerance, and, and that discernment, which, which pains are avoidable and which ones are unavoidable. And for sure, Buddhism isn't teaching, wisdom isn't, uh, uh, what is it, masochism. It's not like, yeah, yeah, just like pain, we, we, we worship pain. No, we just understand that it's unavoidable, and compassion is the only wise relationship to unpleasant experience. Hatred makes it worse. So he's thinking about this. These this is a teaching. It's called the five spiritual faculties, or Powers um, that he talks about later that he arose in his mind when he's reflecting on how do I teach the Dharma? How do I put these five phases of faith and effort, mindfulness, concentration, and the wisdom of the liberated heart, compassion, and understanding the three characteristics? In some ways, it's the first teaching. We talk about the Four Noble Truths as the first, because it's the first time he verbalizes it, uh, which I'll do next week, where he puts it into the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. But these five qualities are something that he's reflecting on as he's walking to Saranath, the way it's recorded. So I'll leave it there for tonight and i've got a question for you you got a question i've got a question for you first for everyone and then you can ask a question um think about how much confidence you have and like even one to ten how much confidence do you have in your process of transformation in the dharma buddhism maybe you have some other spiritual influences that are you know inspiring and but how much? Where are you at? Like, are you at like a two? Are you a skeptic? You're like, I don't know. Fucking, I'm court ordered. <laughs> I'm just checking this shit out because my therapist told me I had to. Skeptical, or are you um, like on fire right now? You know, this changes, right? Sometimes you're super confident and super at a nine confident i'm fucking super inspired i'm going to get enlightened first (laughs) and so think about that where are you in that like one to ten arbitrary but just to see where your heart is these days today on confidence in your own process and when you think about that then think about um how much effort are you putting in again looking at that sort of scale of I'm at a seven in faith. Maybe I'm at a 10 in faith. I totally believe all in. And then looking at like, well, how much effort am I putting in? And, you know, you get like, you know, one or two for meditating and one or two for practicing the five precepts and one or two for, uh, you know, being more careful with your speech and your livelihood and really engaging in the whole eightfold path and one or two for, you know like. Going on retreat, actually making it a priority in your in your life. Like I'm I'm gonna rather than go to vacation, I'm gonna go on retreat. Like, how much of a priority are you putting awakening in your life? And if you want to claim 10, you better be sitting every day practicing the precepts, you know, going on retreat, like really putting in the work, like constant vigilance. So, you know, probably you know, you're like at a six or a seven or or maybe you're at a two. You're like, I meditate once a week at class, really calling it in. Which you know, I probably shouldn't be judgmental about that.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's a low level of effort. And the reality is this path, if you want to get the benefits, if you want to get the freedom, it takes a lot of effort. And interesting just to look at our own minds of like, I totally believe it, but I don't really do it. My faith with a little bit of work or, um, and I'd imagine that some people actually have the flip side where you're like, I don't know if this shit, very low faith, but I meditate every fucking day because I'm desperate. No, not a lot of confidence but a lot of effort and that sometimes it's the effort that increases the confidence. When we start to have that verified, okay, it's working. I'm suffering a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. Question in the back, please. Yeah, um, my name is
2: Louis. Um, thank you for the meditation tonight. My question is, you, know, you, were, thinking, you were talking about um, you know, taking a walk, thinking about how you know, he's going to explain Dharma and, you know, um, you talked about like faith and then effort and like faith without effort is lost or whatever. Um, But like, it seems like he was um, focusing on, you know, his goal of reaching enlightenment, which involved a lot of meditation and, you know, mastering concentration and stuff. But um, would he, would he like, how would he answer like the question of like, were you able to reach enlightenment or would you be able to reach the point you're at if you were focusing on other, um, other crafts at the same time, like, you know, if trying to think of things that were, you know, existing back then, like, um, like uh, sculpture, or like, you know, if he was putting in effort into sculpting and being a master at that at the same time, or like, you know, bodybuilding, you know, like, you know, like, sure. Um yeah, I just, um, you know, it's, and it makes me think of like, you know, the phrase of like um, a of trade for a master none. It seems like he was a master one and not really focused on a jack of all trade. Yeah. Um, and that's like the only way he was able to find I
0: I like the question. And, um, um, could you hear it at home? I'll, I'll repeat. I'll try to repeat it. He, uh, the question was like, okay, the Buddha, like was just a full-time meditator, which led him. Um, but what if, you know, what would he say to those of us who are like, well, you know, yes, I meditate, but I also have all of these other activities or passions, creative endeavors, career goals, relational, um, and that it does sort of the story is so much about him seeking enlightenment and finding enlightenment. Um, part of his backstory is that he didn't start meditating until he was 27 seriously. And, you know, he did those seven years. So before that he was raised, you know, in a kind of abundance and uh, probably was trained in um, his father was a warrior King. So he was probably trained in a sort of Uh, His uh, military, martial arts, there's stories about him learning weapons. And so he did have a worldliness and sexual experience. He had all of that experience um, and found, uh, I'm not getting a lot of happiness out of this. And it's one of the reasons why I'm going on this spiritual journey. And I think that your answer will be your, the question will be answered better next week when we talk about the full Eightfold Path, um, Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path, because the basic answer, he was asked that question a lot. Do I need to just be a full-time meditator or can I be in my life with my job? And his answer was, no, you don't have to be a full-time meditator. If you follow this Eightfold Path and you bring mindfulness to your speech and your actions and your livelihood and your sculpting or bodybuilding, or the difference between him and us is that Nobody taught him mindfulness and how to do that in daily life. We're so fortunate because now we know how to bring, to train the mind, to bring mindfulness into all of our activities. He had to do all of that time because there was no instructions. You know, it's that sort of like trying to figure it out on your own. We actually have a map. There's a whole fucking guide of how to walk through life and not suffer about it, how to train your mind to see clearly and respond wisely. It's called Buddhism. It's like, it's fucking awesome, (laughs) right? We have this whole thing that we get to follow. He didn't have that. So he had to like go down this dead end and that dead end and this fake guru and that, you know, like, and we're over here going like, okay, hopefully we can avoid some of those dead ends and bring mindfulness in our meditation, into all of our activities, careers, relationships, creative endeavors, and that you can get totally free in this lifetime through these tools, through this practice. So I'll, and it'll be addressed more next next couple talks. Last thing, um, it is time. I just want to acknowledge the passing of the wonderful teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, who died this week. And he was, um, he was an awesome teacher. And uh, his books are killer. Read Thich Nhat Hanh books. They're super. You know, there's like 57 Thich Nhat Hanh books. Uh, I guess they're probably all good. I read like five of them, probably. Um, you know, this story that I'm telling of the Buddha's life. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh did a very cool, super creative version called Old Path, White Clouds. I might have said this last week, actually. Um, but if you want to read a very, like a fun Life of the Buddha, totally fabricated, kind of like I'm doing and exaggerated, and he turns them into characters and gives dialogue and uh, Old Path, White Cloud is a great, fun Life of the Buddha read. Um, And what a you know, what an awesome example of like a modern, uh, you know, in our lifetime person who took the Dharma and embodied it and spent his lifetime sharing it with others, having escaped the Vietnam War and coming and being a a teacher and a social and political activist. And uh, I just think that... um, you know, I, I studied with Thich Nhat Hanh and did some retreats and went to lots of lectures. And for me, he wasn't my heart teacher, obviously. Uh, I'm not in that lineage, but I was very inspired by him and uh, integrated a lot of his teachings into my practice and into my teachings. Um, and he lived to be 95. Fucking, what a run. 95 years old. And of course, the reality is we die. And so it's not like, my own feeling, it's not like super sad that he died um, as much as like fucking stoked that he lived and that he was able to live such a long life and and um, share the Dharma with so many millions of people, including me and and so many of us in our community. And um, so I just want to acknowledge him and celebrate his, his teachings and, um, and I'll stay away from all of my criticisms that I have and just stay with the appreciation for tonight. Um, and also a friend in, in the community, um, Stephen Moak, who uh, remodeled this room and uh, built the shelves over there and the kitchen and actually remodeled this whole space for us uh, also died this week and some of you may have known him he was often here on monday nights and um friend of mine and friend of the communities and died this week and um i've been feeling that it was very uh it's close to me and uh, he's close to my kids too and it was my kids first experience of somebody that they knew and loved dying and kind of like watching that uh, grief on uh, 10-year-old and 13-year-old kids and so I want to dedicate the merit tonight to these two uh Beings that passed this week, Thich Han and Stephen Mok, they're just, you know, very similar.
1: <laughs>
0: Any merit that comes from our practice, our wise intentions, our mindfulness, be offered outward in all directions and sending some of this merit, these blessings, these good thoughts, uh, to Stephen Moke, wherever his uh, process is continuing to, to Thich Han, and to Moke's family and friends who are grieving his loss and to all of the people who are grieving the loss and celebrating the life of Thich Han, May each one of us get as free as possible and together may we create a, possible, a positive shift in this culture, on this planet, in this lifetime. Next week, we'll take up um, the Buddha getting to Saranath and turning the wheel of Dharma. See you then. Oh, don't forget to donate. Against the Stream needs your money, so make some donations on your way out. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.